How's everybody doing? I, um, I'm not accustomed to this kind of microphone, and I feel a bit like a lounge singer and feel like I may break out into song, so uh, I hope I can suppress that instinct. Um, let me start, of course, by thanking uh, HIA. It's a wonderful organization. I appreciate the invitation. Um, I appreciate all of you um, uh, showing up, and it's just a wonderful organization. I've spoke with them before in New York, and it's a pleasure to be back. It's a pleasure to be here in Amsterdam. Um, so, why am I here? Um, I research and lecture on and consult about leadership issues in organization, how to be effective leaders. So what that means is basically thinking about how to lead change within organizations. All right, so whether we're talking big corporations, nonprofit groups, political parties, old opportunities are closing, new challenges are constantly emerging, Everything is always in flux, and successful, nimble organizations, organizations that last, are those that can change. And you are here because you've been identified as uh, young professionals who uh, will have leadership roles. And so what I want to do is, this is not so much about um, inspiration, this is about implementation. So... Once you have this vision, so you're going to leave here this weekend having sort of better defined the kinds of goals and careers you want to have, and this is about how to implement that, all right? So that's the goal. It'll make this a very, very practical experience for you. Um, I, I had the opportunity to read your bios, which I enjoyed, so I'll follow suit. Um, so my name is Lauren Nordgren. I was born in the States in Chicago. Um, I went to St. Olaf College after high school. Do we have any, do we have any Oles up here? We've got an Ole. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, that's, that's good. Um, <laughs> um, it's nice to see you. So, um, so I went there for two reasons. The first is St. Olaf College is the place in the world to go to study about Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish existentialist. Um, it's really like if that's what you care about, that's where you got to go, St. Olaf College. All the serious scholars are there. Um, now, you may not be totally surprised that interest proved fleeting, um, but I also went there because of my Scandinavian heritage. I grew up in this kind of Italian-Polish community, and I wanted to be with my people. Okay, uh, And that, in fact, was the case. My two closest friends freshman year of college were both named Thor, um, and I can tell you it's a weird experience the first time you find yourself in conversation having to specify what Thor you're talking about. Okay? So, um, spent four years at St. Olaf, then went on a Fulbright scholarship to Amsterdam. And we've got some Fulbright scholars here. Way to go. Okay, good stuff. Um, so, I got a scholarship here to study how um, drug policy in the Netherlands shapes people's psychological beliefs. So, how these external structures, political structures, cultural structures, influence these internal psychological structures. Another way to say it is I got a Fulbright scholarship to study drugs in Amsterdam. <laughs> Not a bad gig. Um, I continued on here to do my PhD as an experimental psychologist at the University of Amsterdam. Had a faculty position at the Free University, or VU University as they oddly call it now. Uh, and then two years ago, I took a position at Northwestern University at the Kellogg School of Management. 
right? So that's, that's me. And as I said before, I study how people within organizations can bring about change, all right? Now, what you need to understand um, is that what we're going to be talking about today is the science of leadership. So this is not about my own quiet musings of how leadership should work. Um, this is not about plucking anecdotes here and there from history. This is about what does 30 years of research about leadership, this is 30 years of behavioral science, tell us about how leadership dynamics work. All right? I am a hardcore, card-carrying behavioral scientist, and everything we talk about today is really going to be about what does the data tell us. Okay? So one way to frame this, this experience is um, to start with a question. So I want, I want to hear from you. You can just shout it out. I can run down if, if people aren't loud enough. What do you think is, is the most significant, important difference between us and all other animals? What really distinguishes us, people from the rest of the animal kingdom? What, what is it about us that makes us? Language. Language, okay, language capacity. Yeah, in the back. Okay, okay. I, I think lemmings are like that too, but okay. What, what else, what else, what else, yeah. Okay, self-consciousness, self-awareness, planning, yeah. Compassion, empathy, okay. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, anything else, anything else? Sense of guilt, okay, these moral emotions. N knowing about your own mortality, absolutely, that's interesting. Anything else, yeah. N okay, this kind of metacognitive awareness, yeah. Any other thoughts? So those are good answers. Intelligence didn't get raised, it often does, but I like your answer most. So what I think really distinguishes people from other animals is our ability to create culture. So if you think about other animals, they come into the world imbued with a sense of instincts, natural reactions to predators and uh, natural sort of interest in, in, in things that are helpful to them. And then over the course of that lifetime, they learn something about the way that their small little world works. But they don't pass on that knowledge, or at least not very effectively, to the next generation. So this is the thing that people do so remarkably well, right? So no one individual thought this up, right? But we all build on layers and layers and layers of technology and insight. So we create culture. Um, and that's what the course I teach, that's so what I see this experience is all about. So a lot of the ideas here can be picked up through trial and error. You know, 30, 40 years of experience in working in organizations, volunteering, etc., you can come to understand. But that's not what we do so well. So what I want to do today is bring together all this information that we have and give it to you now. So not only can you use it and not have to learn from trial and error, but you can also build on it. Okay? All right. Um, so let's um, outline for today. I don't know how much we get to this, maybe not the last part, but one, we're going to talk about some fundamental laws of leadership. We're going to talk about uh, a, a story of attempted change that failed and then some redemption. I'd like to give you a chance to earn some money. Um, the bulk of this discussion is going to look at when you study the literature on 
bad behavior within organizations, you generally find it's the case that it comes from people with the best of intentions. So we're going to look at the three psychological traps that lead us uh, down uh, unethical paths. Um, and we can tie this into the Goodrich case. Uh, and then lastly, although I don't think we'll uh, have time to touch upon it, is we'll look at some strategies for amplifying our persuasive power. Okay? All right. Today we're talking about ethical leadership. So let's start with definitions. When we think about leadership, what, do we, what does that mean to us? What does it mean to be a leader? Any words, phrases, sentences come to mind? Any definitions in the crowd? Service to others. Okay, anything? What else? Huh? Charisma. Yeah, absolutely. What else does it mean? Yeah. Empowering others. Okay, okay. Okay, taking action, taking charge. Yeah, absolutely. What does it mean? Pardon? Vision. Yes. Pardon? Coordination, okay, yeah. Okay, responsibility. As a leader, you have responsibility. Defining goals, all right. Any other thoughts? Yeah, in the back. Okay, delegation. Yeah, those are great. So um, when I think of leadership, I think of two forms of leadership. So we can think about leadership as leadership by compliance. So leadership by compliance is about having formal power and exerting that formal authority. So within the organizational structure, I'm up here, and I can use that power to get other people to do what I want to do. The other form of leadership is leadership by commitment. So here, the idea is that leadership by commitment is about having a vision, having a goal of where you want to go, and then motivating others to work towards that goal. So there's two elements of that. First, having this vision, and then having the capacity to motivate others to work towards that goal. Now, one of the interesting things about these forms of um, uh, leadership is they have different consequences. So, um, one, they have different sources. So, um, leadership by compliance, by definition, comes from the top, right? In order to wield it, I have to have formal power. Leadership by compliance, on the other hand, can come from anywhere within the organization. All right? And to be maximally effective, it should come from everywhere within the organization. So for the students in the audience, when we're talking about leadership today, this is not um, lessons that maybe can be applied in 15 years when you've got that corner office or whatever it is you aspire to. This is about things you can start using right now. Um, these forms of leadership also have different consequences. So here's the thing about compliance. It's easy to use if you have formal power, right? You don't need to give people in power an instruction manual on how to use it. It comes very, very naturally. The downside, though, is that it costs something. So I don't know if you know this psychological term, reactance, but people do not like to be pushed, all right? So what people don't often understand about leadership by compliance is it's not a, um, a renewable resource. Each time you exert it, you expend yourself. You expend social capital. You fray social bonds when using it. All right? I'm not going to say that this should never be used as a, as a leader, but you need to recognize there are costs to having a leadership style that is about forcing other people to do what you want them to do because you have power. Compliance is, or commitment is a very different thing. So... It's hard to set up, but once you have it, it, not, it doesn't cost you resources. It, in fact, is self-sustaining. Leading by commitment strengthens 
uh, social bonds. All right? So that's a benefit of this style of leadership. Also, if we, these two forms of leadership have very different, um, they work through different means. So compliance relies on formal incentives. All right? So why is it people get up in the morning and go to work? Because there's a salary involved, and if they don't show up, they can be terminated, and maybe they stay late afterwards because they hope for a bonus. Grades operates the same way with students. But it's important to recognize there are very clear limitations to using formal incentives. So, one, within organizations, this is the primary way we motivate people. So, if I want to uh, distinguish my organization through formal incentives, that's a very, very expensive uh, task, right? If I want to uh, make you feel committed to this organization because I pay you more, that's a costly, costly strategy. The second problem with formal incentives is they carry diminishing returns. So if you make $10,000 a year and I give you an additional $10,000, that means a lot to you. If you make $100,000 a year, an extra $10,000 means much, much less. So as people move along, it buys you less and less and less. Um, and finally, it has all kinds of uh, odd, unintended consequences. So in a lecture on motivation, we spend a half hour just going through all the different unintended consequences of formal incentives. So one uh, I'll give, this was some time ago, but Continental Airlines uh, was rated as being one of the poorest airlines in like uh, on-time on flights. So they just had lots and lots of delays. They thought that was a problem, so they tried to create an incentive system to improve performance. Basically what they did, there were different groups of people at gates, and they said, okay, Whatever group has the best performance is going to get some award, monetary award, at the end of the week. Sounds like a good idea. What happened, though, is that these groups started undermining the other groups within the airline in order to ensure that they won, right? So now, you know, maybe one group was understaffed and another wasn't too busy. Hey, could someone come over and help out? No, right? It killed cooperation. People were actively misleading, giving... Um, inaccurate, giving misinformation in order to lead other groups astray. So there's all kinds of problems with, informal, with formal incentives. Um, commitment, on the other hand, uh, works through a very different means. So commitment is based on the behavior of the leader. All right? So as a leader, your behavior needs to match, needs to be congruent with the values of your organization. Okay? And as such, your behavior matters more than others. Does anybody have a good example of a leader whose behavior represents the values of the organization or doesn't represent the value of the organization and the consequence of that? While you think about it, I'll tell you one. So a student of mine told me he worked at Vanguard, a, um, a mutual fund company. And Vanguard's thing is about low costs, low cost, low cost, low cost. So one of the things they do when people are going um, uh, to presentations or traveling is someone sends out the most cost-effective way for them to travel there. And so this student uh, got that piece of information and involved taking a train and then a bus and then a second bus to get there. All right? And he did that because he thought, well, maybe they would check and that seems important to do. But when he was on that second bus, he found that the head of the, the whole company, the president of the, this huge company, was on that second bus. All right? So that's about a leader 
um, demonstrating the values of, that, uh, of the organization with his behavior. Any examples that come to mind here? Okay. Um, so with that in mind, knowing a little bit about what we, we mean when we talk about leadership, I want to tell you a very brief story. So um, in the 1960s, it was discovered that the traditional ways of fighting fires were all wrong. All right? So when you think about how one fights a fire, um, here's what I imagine you think about. A group of firefighters grab a hose, knock down a door, and try and extinguish it, right? That's sort of the image we have of how one effectively fights a fire. And that's how we used to think about it. So the idea was that in order to extinguish a fire, you needed to find what they would call the seat of the fire. The seat of the fire is often its origin, but it's where the fire is burning most intensely. Okay, and the idea was if we can get to that point, that seat of the fire, the heart of the, the fire, and extinguish it, then the rest of the fire will dissipate. All right? Well, it turns out, does anyone know what's the most dangerous thing about a fire? Smoke, right? So when, when a fire starts, it's emitting smoking gas. And what you might not know is that that gas itself is flammable. Okay? And so... One of the reasons fire can spread so quickly is as that gas is being emitted, that can catch, right? Because as heat builds in the room, in fact, you can have this situation that's called a flashover in which basically the whole room gets ignited, which as a firefighter is your worst nightmare, all right? So in Sweden in the 1960s, um, they figured out that a better way to fight a fire is not to barge in, go from the periphery into the heart of the fire and tackle the heart of the fire, rather... You want to start at the outside, cool the smoking gases, deliberately go from room to room, cooling each until you finally get to that intense part, right? It leaves you much, much less vulnerable. And in fact, the way they did this is there was no hose involved. What they had was a spritzer system, okay, which were basically glorified water bottles. They would run into a room and spritz the air, okay, cooling down the gases, cooling down the smoke until that room is cleared out and then move on to the next one, all right? So one of the things you have to believe me about this story is that this was clearly a more effective method. And pretty much every stakeholder involved seems to benefit from this. It's safer for firefighters. Um, it is better for their families. They can feel better about it. Um, it's better for the community because it helps contain fires, so fires spread less. Uh, what's the most expensive? Uh, what does the most damage during a fire? Water. So there's no big hose now ruining the home, so insurance companies like it. It would seem as though all the stakeholders would appreciate this and change should get adopted. Okay? So New York City firefighters find out about this. They say, hey, we want to implement this technology. They bring the Swedes over. They do extensive training. So another thing you have to believe here is that so firefighters don't just unveil new firefighting technology with, with little practice. So they brought firefighters in, got them comfortable, they did extensive training, and then on a particular day they rolled this out. So from now on, we're using spritzer technology. We're not doing it the old way, we're doing this with spritzers. So that day came and passed, and it was determined no one's using this technology. Okay. 
A year passes, they decide to do a review and discover spritzer bottles are missing, they've been tampered with, okay? It's basically non-adoption. No one is using it, all right? So the question is, is why? So what are your thoughts? What went wrong? Okay, this effort to lead change, which is what you're going to have to do, failed entirely. Any thoughts on what went wrong? What went wrong? Yeah. So that's the one thing I'm going to say no. So here is best they could. They, they gave them, they had information. It's a good thought, but they had the information. What else went wrong? Yeah. Okay, so maybe people didn't feel like there was a need to adopt. What's wrong with the old way? Wasn't the old way fine? Okay. Other thoughts? What went wrong? Culture, what do you mean by that? Okay. Okay, a general resistance to change. Yeah. Other thoughts? What, what went wrong? Yeah. Okay, so you're suggesting that thing is a little more masculine than this thing. Yeah, okay, maybe that had something to do with it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, all right, absolutely, right? So this has been imposed on them externally. Other thoughts of what went wrong? Yeah. Okay, exactly. So why, why change a winning team? Yeah. Okay, okay, all right. Any last thought? Yeah. Okay, so the higher-ups had accepted. Good question. It was the, the, the people who were going out and battling the fires that didn't adopt the technology. Yeah. Did the technology work with all the other infrastructure? It was well integrated. It was well integrated. All right, well, so we came in and, and consulted on this. So here's a couple things, a lot of good answers there. But a few things to consider. Okay, one, we've got an outgroup, all right? So imagine if you're this, like, New York firefighter, and here come these, like, socialist blondie Swede guys. Like, that's maybe not real persuasive. Um, secondly, as someone said here, this spritzer technology didn't work well with the kind of macho culture, so it's incongruent with cultural norms. Um, it also disrupted status in a particularly important way, which was hard to identify. So for firefighters, status comes from status comes from seniority, and it comes from risk-taking. Right? And the people who take the biggest risks are those who are at the front of the hose. And so this new technology threatened the existing hierarchy, right? Because now all of a sudden, those people who were at the front of the hose that had high status, were, that were, they were having that status taken away from them. Now we we're all just going to be people with spritzer bottles. Um, again, a general resistance to change and leadership by compliance, okay? This is about everyone's going to start on this date and it's just going to be rolled out, okay? Second question, so what would you have done differently? We recommended something in order to try and get adoption. What would you do? Huh? Okay, so try and spread maybe positive information amongst firefighters. Yeah. Maybe engaging rank and 
Okay. Okay, try and get buy-in. I'll return to that in a moment. Yeah. Okay. Okay, nice idea. Send Americans there so you don't have the out group. Okay, so maybe not New York wide, but just start with small and expand. Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. Um, all right. Other thoughts? Other thoughts? Yeah. Okay. Have their wives nag them? Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay, so a little spritzing and then the hose, maybe, like slowly implementing. Right. Okay, okay. Okay, to try and integrate it maybe into the existing system, yeah. So here's a question. So one of the things, this was before me, but one of the things we identified early on is that we needed buy-in from the right people. So what we were trying to get... We needed buy-in from high-status people, but at the same time, we imagined that because a lot of the status has to do with seniority, the people who had been there a long time might be reluctant to use that technology, right? So if you've got four years left before retirement, you might not be so open to learning a totally different way of fighting fires. So we were looking for young firefighters with high status. Any idea who that would be? who that would be, how we solve that problem. So it turns out that firefighters have very fiercely competitive intramural sports teams, all right? And a few of those sports teams were more successful than others. There were a few firehouses that were known as the really good jockey firehouses, and that their good performance gave them status. And they also tended, of course, to be younger. So that's one thing we did. Um, so we started off, instead of New York-wide, we started with a narrow um, implementation with those particular groups. What are some other things we did? So, right, change the image. So now the spritzer, it worked the same way, but now it looked more like a flamethrower, okay? <laughs> it felt more macho to do it that way. Secondly... We changed the culture by calling this now the SWAT team, all right? So now this wasn't like the spritzer group, but these were like, <laughs> these were the first responders who came to rush in to cool the periphery. And in doing so, we tried to integrate it, incorporate it with existing culture. So rather than saying the hose is gone, we kept that in those Older firefighters who'd been there a long time stayed on the hose. The SWAT team came in to cover the periphery, and then once that was safe, they could rush in, all right? Um, and so now, and we were able to achieve effective adoption. Um, and this is, by the way, how people fight fires today. Um, I bring this up because, so if I think about, like, take-home lessons about leadership, is one is to realize that this is really about your behavior, right? Like, 
Every company has a beautiful mission statement, but it's really about how do you act. And secondly, when we think about leadership, we tend to think it, it's about like resources and outcomes. So like how well our organization is going to perform, like how effective you're going to be as a leader is about the resources you have. So the knowledge, experience, the number of people working with you, etc. Okay? And that stuff is absolutely important. But what I really want you to appreciate is that there is a whole important step in the middle here. It's about the culture. Um, it's about the selection process. It's about the incentives that you create. And if all of this stuff is not congruent with the desired outcome, you're not going to get change. So our, the, the motto of the mantra of this course on leading change is most efforts to change fail. Right? The most likely outcome for attempts to change, lead change to be a leader is failure. So you need this process congruency. Okay, you got to think about this stuff here. It's not just about bad outcomes or not just about bad apples. Okay? All right. Um, so with that in mind, with the leadership part in mind, I want to do something a little different. Um, we're not going to work with... Uh, that's a 50. Um, we're not going to work with U.S. dollars. We're going to work with the euro. So what I'd like to do, this is a 20-euro bill. Okay? And what I'd like to do is auction it off. Um, here are the rules. So be bidding begins at one euro, increases by one euro increments. So we're going to go one, two, three, etc. Uh, you can't jump bid. You, so you can't go from one to three. We've got to go sequentially. And you can't top your own bid. So if you bid one, you have to, you, you can't then bid two. Um, collusion is prohibited. So once we, this starts, there's no, like, talking strategy amongst people in the room or you're out. Um, so here's the rule. Highest bidder receives this in exchange for their bid. Importantly, though, the second highest bidder must pay his or her bid price. Um, and this is for real money. If you don't have it on you right now, that's fine. Uh, I know uh, the, the directors of the organization, and they can make sure <laughs> that they get it. So, all right, let's just get this started. So... Can I see one euro? Who would like to have this for one euro in the back? Okay, how about two? Two here, three. Do I see three? Three here, four. How about four? Four there, five. Five here, six. Six there, seven. Seven there, eight. Eight here, nine. Nine. Nine there, ten. Ten here, eleven. Eleven there, twelve. Twelve. Twelve in the back, thirteen. Thirteen here, fourteen. Fourteen there, fifteen. Fifteen here, sixteen. Sixteen. 16 there, 17, 17 here, 18, 18 there, 19, 19 there, 20, 20, 20 here, 21, 21, 21. 20. So who's on 19? You're on 19, okay. Um, so if you sit here, you owe me $19, or you can just bid up. Do I see 21? Do I see 21? So you're going to lose out on $19 because you don't want to go up one? So you've got to pay me $19 if you don't bid up. Huh? No, no, he's on 20. He's on 20. So do you want to bid 21? That's your problem. 
Anyone else for 21? 21? Do you want to bid 21? Okay, 21. 22. Do we see 22? Do we see 22? 22. How about 23? 23. 23. You can go up one or lose to face a certain loss. Are you sticking or are you going to go up 23? Or anyone else can jump in the game at this point as well. 23? Okay, 23. How about 24? 24? 24? Now it's on you. 25? Okay. How about, how about 26? 26? You see here 26? 26. So now you're going to have to um, pay if you don't you bid up. 26? Okay. 27? 27? 27? Huh? It's between you two here. 27? Or anyone can jump in. Do you want 27? I'm just going. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay. Yeah. Uh, 25? It's going once. 27. How about 28? 28, are you interested in 28 here? 29? 29? 29? 29? 29 in the back, okay. 29 here. How about 30? 30, now it's between you. Are you interested in 30? 31? 32? Would you stick at 29? You lose $29? Going once, okay. Um, was, are we on 32 now? 33? 33, you're done? You're done? Okay, so you're going to lose, what, $31? Okay, so anyone else? Going once, twice, sold to the man in the black shirt. So a $20 bill for $32, okay? I'm, my, someone here will find you. And this will wait for you up front. This, yes, you get this. You paid, you paid $32 for it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, there was a point to all of that, I promise. Um, so, what I want to... What I want to talk about now is thinking about, so if you look at the literature of um, organizations that do unethical things, what you see is that most of these people don't start out with bad intentions. What happens, they fall into a few, really three, very predictable psychological traps that lead them down this road. So just want to go through those. Um, And one of the things that's really important for you to understand here is that because I want to make sure you don't fall prey to these traps yourself, but you need to understand that knowing about them does not help you at all. What you need, you, you have to be armed with strategies for, for dealing with, sort of debiasing these biases. So to give you a parallel, um, this is a grid, and there are, it's a grid with different shades of gray, one... One grid is labeled A, one grid is labeled B. Do you see that here, Emma? Um, Would you say that A and B, are they the same color, shade of gray, or different? Is one darker than the other? Okay, yes. So A is darker than B, yes? Yes, we all agree on that? Okay. Well, that is, in fact, an illusion. These 
grids A and B, all of these are actually the same exact shade of gray. These are identical color. I can demonstrate if I take away all the context here, you'll see what's happening is your mind, like your visual processing system has a number of imperfections, and this visual illusion is just picking up on one of those. All right? Now, here's an interesting thing. You now know that those two squares are the same exact shade of gray. Will showing you it again now help you see the truth? No. Okay? S knowing that they're the same color doesn't help you. All right? We can do it with lots of things. So here's another one. Do, do these lines look straight or crooked? They look crooked, right? But if I run a line across them, you can see that these lines are straight. That knowledge doesn't change the illusion for you. All right? Well, the same is true with the decision biases we're going to talk about. So just knowing that they exist, so in the same way that our visually, visual processing system has a number of imperfections, the way that we collect and integrate information also has very predictable biases. Knowing them isn't enough uh, to neutralize them, so we also have to develop strategies for dealing with them. All right. Um, so the first one, which has to do with the $20 bill auction, is escalation of commitment. So I'll tell you about the $20 bill auction. This always goes one of two ways. It either slows down around the 30 mark, as it did here, or it gets into the hundreds. All right. So we've been doing this a long time. Uh, we do... We do uh, this kind of stuff for all the intelligence agencies in the states. And so once with the FBI, we had them get up to $5,000 on the $20 bill auction. Okay? So um, escalation of commitment is this idea that people invest more resources after an initial bad outcome and the hope of overturning that bad outcome. All right? So you had good feelings about this new project. It didn't go well. But rather than killing the project, you decide to reinvest. Now, that in itself is, is not necessarily a bad thing. That might be the rational thing to do. I'm not saying people should quit after you know, they run into the, the, the first moment of resistance. But what you need to appreciate is that with each new investment, commitment grows. All right? So each time you invest more into a project, your commitment to getting a good outcome increases. All right? Now, the reason for that is people want... Um, we psychologically have this idea that the amount of effort we put into something should match the outcome. So if a student comes to talk to me because they're not happy with the grade on their paper, one of their justifications is, well, I've put so much time into it. All right? There is that idea that the amount of effort should reflect the outcome, okay? But from an economist's point of view, this is all just some cost. This is all in the past, right? We've, we've got to be constantly updating. So your decision about whether to move forward with a project should be unrelated to how much effort you've put in, into it in the past because that money, that time, that energy is gone and it's not coming back, okay? But what, what happens here? is that we find, just like with this $20 bill auction, okay, is as people get into a hole, that effort, that hole, energizes them to dig themselves deeper, 
with the increasingly unrealistic hope of turning this around. All right? So escalation and commitment happens everywhere. Uh, let me give you some examples. So uh, in the National Basketball Association in America, people have draft picks. All right? So this is how you kind of energize your team. You bring in young talent. Having a top draft pick is a valued resource. All right? So you want to get the best player possible with your first pick, then your second, third, or fourth pick. Now, once you choose those, it shouldn't matter. If your fourth pick outperforms your first pick, you can't, it's all a sunk cost. All you should concern yourself is the outcomes. But that's not, in fact, the case. So what you find is people controlling for performance, controlling statistically for all the things you would need to control for, you find that people who are selected early on will play more, be around longer, um, earn higher salary, as long as the people who hired them are around, are in charge, okay? We can't let go of the investment when we think about the, research, or, um, the outcome. Um, government projects are classic escalation of commitment because they take a long time. So often the economic climate changes. Maybe the price of raw materials has changed drastically. And so at some point halfway through a project, it might be, it might be clear that it's no longer viable to complete it. But that's very hard to justify psychologically. The notion that we could have spent $100 million on a project and now just need to stop is very difficult to digest psychologically. Um, casinos, the basic business model of the casinos, escalation of commitment. If you look at what's going on in a casino, you basically have people getting small losses and they're trying to recoup, okay? So they're trying to get to the break-even point. They fall below, and as they keep falling below, they hope to recover to some previous point. Um, uh, wars are this way, right? Like, that's the most valuable resources, life, lives lost. So if you want to keep someone in a war, you just accuse them of what? Cutting and running, right? Very persuasive psychologically, this kind of sunk cost. Um, romantic relationships. How many people have stayed in a relationship too long just because of all the effort they put into it? <laughs> Quite a few of you. How many, how many of you think someone has stayed in a relationship with you too long just because of all the effort they put into it? There are always much fewer hands. I always notice much fewer hands when I ask that question. Um, in my case, I have um, a, a personal anecdote. Uh, I have a 60-pound pet tortoise. Um, this was done not realizing how big it was going to get. Um, it's pretty inconvenient to have any pet of this size, particularly a desert tortoise. Um, at this point, it has its own room. It's, it's very strong. It dug through dry, drywall on one occasion. So, but we've invested so... I mean, it's clear that I should not have this thing. But given the years of, work, of effort making this work, it's impossible now to walk away from it. Okay. All right, so how do we deal with this stuff? Um, maybe you know Nick Leeson, and a final example. So if you know Nick Leeson, does anyone know the story of Nick Leeson? So Nick Leeson was working for the Barings Bank of England, uh, England's oldest merchant bank, a bank that helped fund the Napoleonic Wars. He got behind $2 million on a, a bad trade, and basically, just like the casino example, tr kept trying to recover it. At each step, getting further into a hole, felt more committed to turning it around. So when he was arrested three years later uh, with a debt of $1.4 billion, 
he single-handedly brought down England's oldest bank. Um, okay, so why do we do this? As I've said, sunk cost fallacy. We just deeply believe that the amount of work we put in should reflect how much we get out. As George Bush saying, talking about um, uh, casualties in Iraq, we owe them something. We will finish the task that they gave their lives for. It's very persuasive psychologically. Um, emotions matter, fear, embarrassment, pride. Um, failures to update information, so often projects that seem like a good idea initially, we don't change our estimates. And also, good things like persistence, right? At first you don't succeed, try trying again. Okay, so this is really important, I think, for the, uh, the students here. Um, you got to recognize situations where you're likely to escalate. And you're likely to escalate in situations in which you're, there's high accountability. So um, it's a voluntary investment, all right? You're publicly identified uh, with the investment. Uh, anything where it's your baby, right? So this was your idea. You've identified with it. It's a big investment. These are moments where you're prone to escalate, all right? I think there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit in this room, and entrepreneurs in particular are the most inclined to fall to this escalation of commitment trap, right? Their idea, their project, they've invested everything they have. A lot of entrepreneurs do not know when to walk away from a bad early investment. So the question here is how do we protect ourselves from it? Any thoughts? How, do we, how should we protect ourselves from escalation of commitment? Yeah? Okay. Yes, absolutely. So, having a sense of like clear criteria of when to get out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, having a, a objective third-party perspective. Yeah. A clear understanding of what success or failure looks like, yeah? Pardon? Okay, so account for failure, yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know what you mean. Okay, exactly, yeah. So taking some of the decision power out of the hands of the people. Yeah, that's really good. So there's three things, and I really hope... There's moments here sometime down the line that people think back to these strategies up front. So um, the first is we have to have pre-established decision criteria. So before you start investing on a project, you need to define what success and failure looks like. At what point will I step away from this project? And you need to make those limits public limits. All right? So often what I find... Um, with when we get high scores in the in the twenty dollar bill auction, someone will pay eighty, ninety, hundred dollars for it. I'll say, okay. Um, so when you hit, did you set a limit? Someone will say, yeah, I set a limit at thirty. Okay, so you clearly went way over that. So what happened when you hit thirty? You know, she'll say, well, I set the next limit at forty. Then I set the next limit at fifty. Okay, so we don't have private limits. We need to make these very public, so we stick to them. Um, secondly is we need outsider's perspective. So where 
I have escalation and commitment issues in my life is with research projects, particularly with PhD students. So a PhD student will invest, what, a year, year and a half on a project to finally get the outcome, and often then that outcome isn't very interesting. So then there's the question, do I stop there, or do we now invest again? And that's one of the most common reasons for poor behavioral science PhD, um, because they get on one idea, it was their baby, they invested a lot of time, and they can never get off that idea. And once they've invested three years, they can hardly stop now. So one of the strategies we use, if they want to do a second study, particularly run a third study, is we need to call in somebody else from outside of this original decision-making process to hear us out and decide for us whether to continue or not. You need to bring in that outsider's perspective. And then the third part is to have an exit strategy, right? So when you start up this new project, when you start up a new nonprofit organization, you need to ask yourself, can I live with failure? What does failure look like? Can I survive that? Of these three, what do you think is the one, like when we consult about this, what do you think is the one people are most reluctant to do? Okay, outside perspectives. Yeah, the last one, exit strategies. The reason for that is people have this belief that we can't talk about failure in the idea, uh, in the idea generation phase. Okay, there's this idea that if we start talking about failure before the project starts, we somehow kind of kill the motivation, the enthusiasm for the project. All right? And that's often why people haven't thought through whether they can survive a bad outcome. So what we tell people to do is, it's like, um, we call it contingency planning that somehow makes it easier for people to do. Um, there is contingency planning, edu uh, exit strategies in our uh, intimate life, we, in, in, a, uh, in one of our institutions. What is that called? Prenuptial Pre agreements, right? Prenups. Now, if you look at the divorce rates, that seems to make an awful lot of sense. But again, you see the same thing where it doesn't seem very romantic if two people decide to um, wed forever and then uh, start thinking about, well, what should happen if this doesn't work out? But they're sure happy if they do later on. Okay? All right. Um, for the next thing, I want to show you a quick video. So there's some rules to this video. This is going to be a counting task. All right? You're going to be asked to count. There's going to be two teams. There's a, a team wearing black shirts, and there's a team wearing white shirts. And your task is going to be to count the number of times the team with the white shirt passes the basketball back and forth. Okay? So... It's going to start with this guy right here. He's going to pass the ball to another team member with a white T-shirt. And I just want you to count the number of times that ball gets passed back and forth. Now, a couple important things for this to work is people do not count out loud. It starts to screw up everyone else. And so just eyes up here, okay? So it's really a concentration task. How many times does the white team pass the ball?
Okay. How many? Okay. 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 I count. I always count 17. I don't know. 18. Okay. Okay. Um, so how many people saw the gorilla? Okay. How many people did not see the gorilla? Okay. Okay. So for the people who did not see the gorilla, for the people who did not see the gorilla, I'm going to replay the video. You have to look very closely, though, because it's very subtle. All right? It's, it's there, it's there, and it's gone. Okay? Okay, tell me now if you feel like you can see the gorilla. Okay, so there's a point to that too. Um, so we talked about the first psychological bias that leads people in organizations to make unethical decisions. The next two biases both relate in the sense that they have to do with the biased perception of information. All right, so just like we have these kind of visual processing illusions, often we do not see the environment in full, right? We have very selective attention for particular aspects of the situation, and that selective attention leads our decision-making astray, all right? So we can miss the gorilla in the room. So the, the second psychological bias I want to talk about is called loss aversion. Um, does anyone have a five-euro note, five-euro bill? Five-euro bill. Got a, someone up front, preferably. Here we go. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. This is, you are Amber. Amber, I'm give, taking this five-euro, and I'm now giving it to, to, to your ex-boyfriend, which might make that particularly painful. That's no longer yours. It's now his. Okay? So, if you two are like, most of people, I bet that is a more significant psychological event for Amber than for Tom, okay? Losses, as we say, loom larger than gains. So losing $20 is a more significant psychological, emotional event than having to find $20, all right? We are hypersensitive to losses. We are averse to certain losses. So one way you can see that is if you look at the game of golf, um, so, if you don't know this, the, the, the whole rules of golf, basically each hole has a number of shots you can take to get the ball in the hole. Uh, par means like you did it on the required number of shots. Birdie is one shot better. Bogey is one shot loss. Now, look at Tiger Woods' thought on um, golf. So, Tiger says, anytime you make big par putts, I think it's more important to make those than birdie putts. You don't ever want to drop a shot. The psychological difference between dropping a shot and making a birdie, I just think it's bigger to make a par putt. So, there's, if you don't understand the rules, it's fine. 
But basically, there's very clear um, empirical evidence to show that golfers will spend more time when they're trying not to lose a point than when they're trying to gain a point, even though mathematically it's all the same thing. Okay? And there's millions of dollars lost in earnings based on that psychological bias. All right? Almost anything you think about, we're more sensitive to losses in the environment than to gains. Now, the reason that's a, an ethical problem is because people will take extreme gambles to avoid certain losses. Right? So you're branching off with a new project idea. It's now clear that that is way things are going now, it means to take a certain loss, there's a very uncomfortable prospect for people. And people will take tremendous gambles in order to try and avoid a certain loss. Right? And you can see how this thing is, is related to escalation of commitment, right? So as people get further into the hole, face greater certain losses, it becomes harder and harder not to um, further invest. Okay, so what, what do we do about something like that? So the solution here, just like in that ball toss game where some people only saw the white shirts and missed the gorilla passing through, your mind is always going to go to, what do I stand to lose? All right, You're always going to think in terms of losses. But you need to make sure you look at the whole picture. So what you need to ask yourself, um, and we'll see this in the Goodrich case, is what do I stand to lose if I take this gamble? All right? People's mind is all about, I can't accept this loss, but often what they remarkably fail to think about is what do I stand to lose by digging myself deeper into this hole? Okay? All right. The third psychological principle that leads people astray is the confirmation bias. Now, the confirmation bias is the idea that people tend to seek out information that confirms their beliefs and ignore information that disconfirms their beliefs. Um, again, this is about biasing the gathering of information, okay? So it's like there's two options, option A, option B, but I've got this preconceived idea that option A is better, and as I'm getting information about both of those, I use different standards and evaluate A differently than B. Um, and this is driven by the fact that we like agreement. So if people who have lots of business meetings will know that when people walk out of a meeting and say, hey, that was a good meeting, good, great meeting, good stuff, what does that mean? That means there was a lot of agreement in that meeting. That's never said after a meeting in which there's a lot of competing ideas expressed. Um, being a devil's advocate is not a good strategy uh, to promote yourself, right? We don't like people... Um, who break from the norm. So we like, uh, we like agreements. We also apply higher standards for disconfirming information. So let me tell you about one study. This is a study in which people were uh, led to believe that they were part of a test to look at pancreatic cancer screening. So basically, you're going to figure out whether you're like, prone to develop this cancer later in life. Now, there were two conditions. The first condition... Everyone was given a piece of paper and told to put it on their tongue, all right? In one condition, they were told this was a white piece of paper. One condition was told, if the paper turns purple, it means you are not at risk. The other condition was told, if the white paper turns purple, you are at risk, okay? Now, this was just basic litmus paper that would turn pink 
when it touched moisture. So for every single person, this paper turned pink. Now, pink isn't white. Pink isn't exactly purple either. It's somewhere in between. And the study was looking at how people reacted to this ambiguous information. Now, when the pink meant you do not have pancreatic cancer, proneness to pancreatic cancer, no one in that group thought anything more about it. Right? Well, that must... It looks pink to me, but that must be what they mean by purple. Studies over, leave. However, when it was bad news, when it meant you do have pancreatic cancer, now about 40% of the people came up to the experiment and said, well, there must be something wrong here. You said it would turn purple, and this is clearly not purple. All right? Or they started justifying reasons why the test might be inaccurate. You know, I had something really spicy for breakfast today, and maybe that had something to do with it. Okay? Again, applying a different standard for information they don't want to hear. Um, the last is conformity of pressure. It's very, very difficult for you to appreciate um, the power to conform. So let me show you one video to kind of give you a sense of this. The ASH experiment is one of psychology's oldest and most popular pieces of research. A volunteer is told that he's taking part in a visual perception test. What he doesn't know is that the other participants are actors and he's the only person taking part in the real test, which is actually about group conformity. Please begin. The experiment you will be taking part in today involves the perception of line length. Your task will be simply to look at the line here on the left and indicate which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. So, for example... The actors have been told to match the wrong lines. The volunteer will be monitored to see if he gives the correct answer or if he goes along with the opinion of the group and gives the wrong answer. In the first test, the correct answer is two. Uh, one. 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 Two. One. Once again, the correct answer is two. Three. 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 The ash experiment has been repeated okay. many times, and the results have been... So, um... The reason why we should care, the reason we need to care about the confirmation bias is very, very dangerous. So, one, it leads us to um, ignore vital information. So, this confirmation bias is like having a blinder on, okay? So, you're only seeing half of the picture. It also creates this illusion of knowing. So, imagine six of us get into a room, the person with the formal power says, okay, well, there's two options here, A or B. I think we probably all agree that A is the better way to go. Um, does anyone disagree? All right? That confirmation pressure is going to make it very hard for anyone to speak up and creates for that leader this perception of consensus. Well, I had a cross-functional team, people with a lot of different experience in the room, and they all thought option A was the way to go. Whereas if you looked at those people individually, you would find that there were a lot of different ideas and concerns that never got surfaced. 
So as a leader, you need to actively request disconfirming information. In consulting, we'll have people all the time say, yeah, I know this is an issue, but everyone knows they can speak up in our group. That is not enough. As a leader, you need to actively express interest in disconfirming information. So in our PhD group, we will randomly assign someone in the room as devil's advocate role. All right. Their job is to say, why is this a bad idea? Recently, our department um, wanted to start a new initiative. It was going to be a costly initiative, so we decided to bring in an outside consultant. One of us had a good idea, which was, clearly, we think this is a good idea. We've met about it several times. So rather than having this consultant come in and tell us what we want to know, why don't we have this consultant come in to tell us why it's a bad idea? If we're not persuaded by what that consultant has to say, then we can feel pretty good that it's the right way to go. All right? So we want to actively encourage this confirming information. And also, we, for meetings, like just a very practical issue is when you're trying to surface unique information, you want to collect information privately. Right? Having people go around the room and say the first thing that comes to mind is not a good way of getting unique information out there because people will figure out, okay, what is the mainstream point of view and stick to that. All right. So um, I want to talk about this briefly as it relates to the, the Goodrich case. Now, um, maybe some of you have read this. Maybe some of you haven't. If you haven't read it, uh, I hope that you'll find time to read it later on and see this as a way to integrate some of these ideas. So... Um, let me just tell you the basic story. So BF Goodrich is a tire company mostly, um, but they also make brakes. And they were bidding on a job to make a military aircraft brake for a military company called LTV. Now, there's an important backstory there, which was they once had a contract with this company, LTV, but they screwed it up and lost that business. All right, so they were coming into the game with a bad reputation, and they wanted to try and make this up somehow. Okay, um, And so the way they did that was, one, they designed a new brake, a new lighter brake. Because if you're talking about aircraft, weight is very, very important. Yeah, um, And secondly, um, they did what's called buying into the business. So basically, they just underbid everybody. So they weren't going to make any money on this deal, but the hope with later on, they can make some money on it. All right? Now, where this ends, so they get the bid to make a brake that is designed to stop a military plane on a runway. Okay? The end point of this game is what? Engineers are going to send out a brake that they don't suspect... They're going to send out a break that they know they have reams and reams of data telling them will not stop these planes. All right? Full knowledge, they realize these breaks are faulty. Engineers will put them in a box and send them out. That's the end point of this story. All right? One of the things for you to think about in your own mind, I don't need hands here, is to think about whether you imagine you could do that. If you are a young engineer in this company... Would you be willing, do you have it in you, send out a break that you know could cost the life of military pilots? All right? I suspect most of you think not. Um, so here's, a, here's kind of the story here. So one, early on, there's, there's a sense 
that we can't lose this account, right? We screwed this up once before. Now we really have to get this right. There's a lot at stake, which makes people prone to escalation of commitment. Second step is they start setting deadlines for when they're going to have this break out and start ordering parts before all the tests have been run, all right? So that's also a kind of escalation trap. Um, so what happens early on is one of the young, uh, it's kind of his first project, one of the young engineers discover, hey, this break doesn't work. All right, it's just on all the tests we run, it's not stopping things. Okay, so at this point, they could go to the company and say, I'm sorry, this new revolutionary brake pad, we kind of jumped the gun here. We're going to have to go with a heavier model. They could have done that, but they in instead decided to escalate commitment further. So uh, kept running more tests, taking time, investing more time and energy. At this point, one of the, the military team comes to look at the progress, and they manage to keep them just away from the facility. You know, So they just... Uh, distracted them somehow. So now this is sort of their first step uh, towards fraud, right? They're actively kind of misrepresenting themselves and lying. They still cannot get this break to work, so they start changing uh, specifications of the test. In fact, they start trying to miscalibrate the instruments that measure the break in order to get it to say what they want it to say. But even that doesn't work. This break is that bad that cheating in these two different ways does not get the results that they need. So finally, they just start running tests on paper. So they just falsified all the information in order to get this break uh, to say what they needed to say. And the end result being, they send off faulty brakes to LTV pilots. And the first time a pilot used this, the brake locked up and it was a problem. So no one died, but it, it was indeed faulty. Um, if we look at this, though, we can see a lot of particularly the escalation in commitment and loss aversion processes here. And these people, when you read this story, these are not criminals. These are not people who've lived unethical lives in the past. But they made these early missteps, right? So one, there's a culture here of fear in the organization. You don't report bad news. We can't, we, you know, we can't get this project wrong. And they made the step of committing themselves before they knew it was certain. And before you knew it, they were just in a hole that they didn't feel like they could get themselves out of. Um, and if you were, so, so like, and again, no one was doing the right things to disarm these processes. So no one was asking, what's, can we develop an exit strategy? Um, what does failure look like if we get this wrong? All right, so clear expressions of these biases. So um, I, I encourage you to kind of look through this article again. It's, this room is too big to have a discussion about it. But look through this article again as a way to um, integrate this information. Another reason besides these three biases, I need you to understand that doing bad things is really easy. Okay? One reason it's very easy is because of incrementalism. So... No engineer goes from being an, an honest engineer to sending off faulty brake pads in a day, okay? Serial killers aren't made in a day. It takes lots of little steps before you get extreme behavior, right? Each one of these steps was a small step towards sending off a brake pad. 
But they all needed to happen incrementally for that to happen. Rationalization. People are mental gymnasts. And if you give them room to use that capacity to rationalize, they will do so. So look at some of these quotes. Well, technically, I don't think what we're doing can be called fraud. We're not falsifying data. We're, using, we're exercising engineering license. At 42 with seven children, bills aren't paid with personal satisfaction, nor house payments paid with ethical principles. It's none of my business, and it's none of your business. I have no control over this thing. Why should I let my conscience bother me? All right? And then the last part of this is diffusion of responsibility. Um, so as escalation of commitment, so when you look at these organizations, as escalation of commitment grows, more people get pulled in. And you'd think that means this should get resolved because it really takes one person to blow the whistle. But what in fact happens is more people get pulled into this problem, the responsibility becomes diffused. All right? Um, this is also known as the bystander effect. So uh, this is an old classic psychological experiment, which is simply looked at if we put someone, this was done in New York on a sidewalk, where they had someone lay on the sidewalk and ask for help. And the dependent variable was simply how long does it take for someone to help that person? The one thing they controlled for is the number of people on the sidewalk at any one time. What they found was as you increase the, num the foot traffic, you increase the amount of time that person would stay there, right? Whereas intuitively, we would think the opposite. Why? Because if there are hundreds of people walking on the street and one person is as asking for help, no one of us feels compelled to act, okay? Um, you may know the Kitty Genovese. There's been more recent examples of this where lots of people will witness some very horrible accident take place. Any one of those uh, people could, is in a position to stop it, but no one does. Okay, So to get a sense of what happens here when you put these things together, um, let's think a little bit about something that may be familiar to you, is the uh, Milgram Obedience to Authority study. Um, so basically, Stanley Milgram wanted to know, if I asked people to shock others to death, could I get anybody to do that? Okay, And essentially, everyone thought, Basically, no percent. Maybe people who are psychologically ill might do it, but basically you would get no one to do this. Um, so we'll watch the video in a moment, but essentially what Stanley Milgram does is he has a confederate, someone who's in on the experiment, pretend to be getting shocked, and he has someone who has to administer shocks. And this person has to administer shocks every time a wrong answer to a quiz is given. Okay? Now, what you see here is that each time a wrong answer is given, the voltage increases, all right? And this is the information that the participants had. So slight shock, very strong, intense, extreme, danger. And down here, it's just three Xs, implying just probably death. And he was interested, okay, how many people would actually do this? Here's people's estimates. So most people thought no, well, no one thought they would go beyond extreme shock. Most people thought they would stop at moderate. Here's people's responses here. No one stopped before intense shock. Most people, 26, went fully to 200 uh, or 450 volts. Okay? Let's take a look at that.
Now, what I'm going to do is strap down your arms to avoid any excessive movement on your part during the experiment. Is that too tight? This electrode is connected to the shock generator in the next room. And this electrode paste is to provide a good contact to avoid any blister or burn. We'll now get a shock of 75 volts. He kind of did some yelling in there. 75 volts, yeah. <laughs> Please continue. This will be at 330. Just how far can you go in this thing? As far as it's necessary. I can't stand the pain. Let me out of here. Stand. I'm not going to kill that man. Yeah. You hear him hollering? As I said before, the shocks may be painful, but I'm not eating it. They're hollering. He can't stand it. What if something happens to him? The experiment requires that you continue, teacher. Yeah, but uh, I'm not going to get that man sick of that. I mean, he's hollering in there. I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for it. Continue, please. 285 volts. Continue, please. Okay. So as we can see, when we want to build ethical organizations, we need to make sure that we have culture and process that supports that, right? So we can't just hope for good people within the organization, right? If you've, if you've got the wrong incentives, like you get the behavior you reward, not the behavior you want. If your culture, incentive structure, process supports behavior that's about cutting corners, um, doing the wrong thing, that is the behavior you're going to get. And when you get that behavior, it's not simply about cleansing the bad apples from that organization. It's about making sure you get that process right. Okay? Yeah. Right. So there's a good question. What characterized the people that didn't comply? Um, it's hard to say um, very little. I mean, often people who you would think wouldn't who would maybe be better equipped, did in fact comply, although it's kind of hard to say based on this study. All right, so part three, we're, I'm going to have you out here in 15 minutes, and then we're done here. Now we're going to change gears. I know that part's a little depressing, okay? Um, so now what I want us to think about is not the problems that occur within organizations, but rather... So to be a leader, right, has these two components, having a vision and getting others to adopt, getting them motivated to adopt that vision. So what I want to do is something very just practical for you to think about how can you amplify your persuasive power. So whatever your five-year goal is, and I hope that you have one, I can help make sure that that comes true, okay? So there are five zones of influence of Five zones of persuasion. We certainly cannot talk about all of them today, so we're going to cover three. The source, um, the audience, and interpersonal tactics. Let's jump in. So the source is simply um, you. So you are the first point of contact in any point of persuasion. Okay? And in order to be persuasive, you need to have credibility. 
And credibility is based on three things. Trustworthiness, likability, and competence. And once you recognize these three dimensions, watch any television commercial. It'll be constructed of it, probably all three of these things or at least one of them, right? They try and persuade you by making it likable, right? That's through humor, um, talking about how long they've been in business, it's competence, uh, putting some friendly person in to make it seem trustworthy. These three components are the basis of persuasion. So um, trustworthiness is about appearing objective, right? That's why people always say things like, well, I don't have any stake in this, but, okay? So in order to have credibility, one, you need to appear objective, right? So when we give people insight on how to be persuasive, we talk about not allowing their preconceived ideas to surface. Um, second, we talk about how do you be likable. So one of the things we talk about is strategic interaction, taking time um, to flatter sincerely others. Um, so some people are reluctant to flatter because there's this idea that we'll detect the flattery. So if you come up afterwards and maybe, you know, you want a lot of recommendation from me or something like that, and you decide, oh, well, I could flatter him to make him think it's nice, you may think, well, he'll detect that. Well, that's not a problem because people are what I like to call presidents of their own fan club. So this is data from my last set of students, and I asked them to estimate percentage-wise where they fell on a variety of skills, how good are you at decision-making, bargaining, intelligence, driving, etc.? And here are the scores. So some people in this class need to be below 50%, okay? But everyone puts themselves well above that. It's also what we call the better-than-average effect, right? We tend to think we're above average on most every dimension, so flattery works in with our self-schema, okay? So feel free to flatter me afterwards. Um, so, so you've got trustworthiness, likability, and then competence, about expertise. So um, competence is not just a matter of like, there's like legitimate competence, like how good are you at what you do, but there's also this like very superficially encoded competence. So um, this is a study done by a good friend of mine, Alex Todorov, that appeared in Science. And here he had... He wanted to see whether he could predict U.S. congressional elections. And what he did is he showed two people running against each other. There was no information given about these people. They weren't even told that they were politicians. All they were asked to do was make judgments about these people based on simply their appearance, these black and white photographs. And in fact, if anyone could identify who these people were, they were taken out of the study. Okay? So here it was just a matter of saying how competent... Who's, who looks more competent, the one on the left or the one on the right? That was the judgment. What they found, you don't need to understand this, but they could predict 82% of the election outcomes based on these votes of competence-looking faces, and they could predict the strength of victory. All right? Um, and I've got all these studies over and over again that these very superficial displays of competence influence people in dramatic ways. So that's an important thing to, to think about. Um, now, the reason I bring this up... Huh? Oh, the one on this side. Um, so this is one of the most helpful uh, things that I've taken away from this course. So w people are complex, but we can boil all... Um, 
all evaluations of, of ourselves along two dimensions. Warmth, like are we friendly or cold, and competence. Like, do you think I did a good job? Well, pretty much 90-some percent of that evaluation will come down to, did I seem competent and did I seem warm and friendly? All right? And one of the things we need to understand is that these things don't conflict. Okay? So you can create this quadrant and you can put people by, like, particular professions, in fact. So, like, cold and high competence, like, people think of lawyers that way. All right? But... What you are aiming for at all times is high warmth, high competence. So on, um, on the flight over here, this is a napkin from my meal, I set out some two-year goals for myself. And under each of those goals, I wrote out competence and warmth. Okay? So this is a, a compass that I return to over and over again. So how am I going to express those goals? How am I going to do these things in ways that are both achieve high warmth and high competence? All right? And again, this isn't about like creating some false sense of who you are. You have all of these qualities about you. But this is just a very, it's about expressing that clearly. Um, so one of the things I would challenge you to think about, like as you're trying to push your vision of how the organization that you're in should look like, is you need to think about actively developing that credibility. Take time to express warmth, to express competence, okay? Because this is very, I assure you, it is very, very effective. Um, last bit, or second to last bit, is the audience. So if you are the source and you're trying to uh, persuade others, we can divide the audience into friends, fringe, and foe. Friends being people who support our point of view, foes being those who oppose, oppose it, and fringe who are kind of neutral. Who's the most important group? Who should we spend most of our time on? Who do we, spend most, who do we end up spending most of our time on? Foes. Okay? If you're ever in a contentious meeting, people spend all their time battling with the person who opposes their point of view, even though everyone else gets a vote in the room. Right? Clear persuasion mistake we make over and over and over again. Why is that a mistake? Who's the hardest person to convince of our point of view? Foes. Once you've, you've got a person put their stake in the ground publicly, it's very hard to get them over to your side. So we need to think about bringing neutral parties into the discussion. Um, okay. Last bit is to think about, I just want to leave you with two interpersonal strategies here. Um, uh, that can amplify your persuasive power. The first is commitment. Right? So if you want people to do what you want them to do, you want them to verbally commit. So um, once people make a, a commitment, it's very hard for them not to be consistent. So maybe you've heard of this like concept of dissonance, like cognitive dissonance. It's this idea that it's, it's uncomfortable for people to express one thing and then be shown to be inconsistent with that. So... Um, charities know about this. They call it the foot in the door strategy, which is why um, often they ask for a small donation up front and then ask for something bigger much later. Why? Because if they ask for the big thing right away, people say no. But if I get you to commit to something small, then it's easier to get you to commit to something bigger later on. Okay? Um, so... 
like in restaurants, a good example of this is in restaurants, they often, so there's this problem of people making reservations and not calling back. Well, rather than just asking, hey, will you make sure to call if, if you're going to cancel, they'll ask, will you call if you have to cancel. Just simply getting that verbal commitment is helpful, okay? So we want to think about how do we get people to make small steps in the direction of our goal, right? So what your pet causes, getting people to make small steps in that direction. So um, like in one study, in one condition, people came around with a huge sign that says, I'm against drunk driving, and asked, hey, would you mind if we put this on your front lawn for a few weeks? Basically, no one said yes to that proposition, all right? In another condition, they first come around and say, hey, would you sign a petition that says you're against drunk driving? Everyone will sign that petition. Then they came back to those people a second time and said, oh, by the way, would you mind if we put this big sign in your front yard for three weeks? Now, 35, almost 40% of the people say, okay, all right? So getting people to make small steps in that commitment can be very helpful. Last bit is, is what we call the reciprocity principle. And this is the idea, if people give to us, we have to give back to them. All right? This is a basic kind of social psychological thing at work. So um, if we think about like old school, traditional 1950s dating roles, or at least like what I see on TV, often you'd see a man take a woman out on a date and be and he would encourage her to buy the most expensive thing on the menu, okay? Why did he want that? What was he hoping to get? <laughs> what was he hoping to get? A second date, right? I'm <laughs> okay? So, if you, so, so very often we think first about what we want from other people. Um, so one of the things we've done with the FBI, right? So one of the things they used to do in the FBI is immediately start making demands on uh, hostage takers. Give us the women and children. Now their approach is to say, hey, you haven't asked for it, but here's food and water. And then sometime later saying, you know, we've given you some things. Maybe you can give us the women and the children. Making gestures like that is very, very powerful. So um, a lot of different ideas here. Uh, let's just review them quickly. Some take-home points. Your behavior matters. If you, you know, you need to embody the values of the organization you're going to be a part of. When things go wrong, we can't just think about getting rid of the bad apples. We need to care about the process, right? It's not just about inputs. It's about making sure the process is, is congruent with the outcomes. Um, being unethical is very easy when the processes support it, and we've got to be mindful of these decision traps that lead us down these paths. Uh, and then finally, we want to think about these in a very simple um, but strategic interactive things we can do, like expressing this warmth and com um, competence to give us sort of maximum persuasive power. Um, I'm going to be sticking around here. Please come talk to me individually. Um, good luck to you all in all of your endeavors uh, and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.